you guys all hate me, I'm sure. Thank you for playing along. Uh, my name is Nick Molnar. I'm a web developer from New York City. Uh, a little over three and a half years ago, I created uh, an open source project with my buddy Anthony called Glimpse. Can I get a show of hands for how many people have seen, a, seen or used Glimpse before? Awesome. For those of you who have your hands up, uh, I have stickers at the front that you can come and grab at the end. If you did not raise your hand, I'll tell you where you can go. You can go to getglimpse.com uh, and you can find out more. Um, I'm American. I've always been American, um, probably not going to change that. So, so you already know a couple of things about me. First of all, I'm fat. That's true. I am fat on purpose. Uh, and so when I visit your fair country, I have all kinds of challenges, uh, particularly with food, because you guys don't call anything the right name. Um, you have things like aubergine, uh, which is eggplant, by the way. Uh, you have things that are delicious and sweet that you call pudding. That's dessert. You have uh, these green things that my mom forces, to me, forces me to eat that you call courgette, and we call zucchini. Apparently, you have more pudding that we call bread. Uh, you have rockets. I eat a Oh, oh. I hit the wrong key on my keyboard sometimes. You have rockets. I eat arugula, and the winner of the most overloaded word in British ease. Once again, you have pudding, <laughs> which I call sausage. You have other things, too. <laughs> we won't even go there in America. So, um, so let's actually talk about web performance. Before we dive into web performance, I think it's important to take a step back and consider what we're trying to do with web performance. So I want to look at web performance through the lens of the OODA loop. The OODA loop was put together by Colonel John Boyd. He's uh, in the military in America. It's a strategic decision-making uh, framework that's very well utilized in the American military. It has four stages, observe, orient, decide, and act. So in the observation phase, you gather as much data as possible. In the orient phase, you parse that data and make sense of what it means. That will input and help you make a decision. Maybe you need to do a little bit more research to make that decision. And then you finally act. You will implement something. And the feedback loop starts again. Um, for this talk, for this session, we're only going to concentrate on observe and orient. I did a talk in Oslo at NDC called Full Stack Web Performance. I'll give you a link to the video uh, at the end of this session where I only focused on dis decisions and actions and actually making things faster. But we're going to look at just how do we figure out if something is fast and make sure that it stays fast. To do that, we need a way of measuring, and we measure with metrics. Now, there's a lot of different types of metrics, so I've taken a moment to kind of break them down into four different categories. Uh, there are quantitative metrics, rule-based metrics, milestone metrics, uh, and perceived metrics. So quantitative metrics are probably the ones that you're most familiar with when you think about web performance. It's number of HTTP requests for the page. It's the image weight or the page weight or the number of redirects or the number of domains that you're connecting to, right? These are all simple numbers. Uh, the problem with simple numbers is they don't really tell us anything about performance. If I tell you I have three JavaScript files on my page, you don't know if my page is fast or slow. But the beauty of these numbers, of these quantitative metrics, is that they're simple to understand. So if I tell you we could build a feature in two different ways, this way is going to take 
two JavaScript files that weigh 600K, and this, feature, this weighs and take one JavaScript file that weighs 300K, we can pretty quickly know, well, this way is probably going to be more performant because we have these simple numbers that we can compare. Next is rule-based. Rule-based metrics are kind of derived from qualitative metrics. They take all the qualitative metrics and run them through some collection of best practices and give you back recommendations on what to do. So you think of like Google PageSpeed or uh, Yahoo's YSlow, right, where it gives you a grade. It says you scored 88% or you got a B. Those are really nice because you just get this one number that you can like tell your boss, hey, we're 88, we got a B. Uh, but they're bad because they still also don't tell you if you're actually fast. They're telling you that you're following the best practices. You're really getting the low-hanging fruit out of the way for performance. When we start to talk about milestone-based metrics, now we're really getting to the heart of performance, right? Because the heart of performance is about timing and how long things take, and milestones are about measuring how long it takes to get to a certain point in time. So you've probably seen a lot of these. Let me walk you through some of them. Um, so here we have this, this browser. This is Nick browser. I, I make this browser. It's not open source, so you don't care about it. Um, it's, it's blank. We just opened it up. We haven't gone to any page, but we've typed in a URL, stratastore.com slash login, and we hit enter. From that moment, there's a timer running, essentially. And the first thing that we're going to find about, out about is the time to the first byte. That's how long from the moment I hit enter until I actually get data back to the browser, that very first byte. The browser can't show anything on the first byte. It's probably a less than symbol, right? Um, it, doesn't, it can't do anything with that. Uh, but we get the time to first byte. And this is a metric that people use to figure out how fast their server is. Um, th there's a problem with this metric, though. It's very blocky and obtuse. So if you'll allow me to press F12 and look at the developer tools of my browser, I can show you and zoom in a little bit more to the time to first byte. Well, when I hit Enter in the location bar to go to that URL, a bunch of things happened before I got my first byte. First and foremost, the browser queried some DNS server somewhere to find out the IP address for this host. Right? So this time is represented here by DNS. Once we had the IP address, we had to connect to it and make a TCP connection. So that can take some time in the orange. Uh, this is an HTTPS site, so we need to do a TLS handshake. That takes some time uh, in pink. And then uh, what most browser tools call time to first byte is actually the amount of time from when they actually send the request off until you start to get a response, which isn't really the same thing. And then the beginning of that dark blue over there that's downloaded, that's the first byte that we got. And it'll take a while to download all that HTML. So time to first byte is cool, but it doesn't help you because you actually need to know all of these other timings. You don't know, was my server slow, or was there a lot of network latency? Was the TCP connection take forever to establish? Um, so you need to really break it down more. But we can continue down the journey of time to x. Um, we have time to first paint. This is an interesting metric. This is the first time the, the user sees something show up. They're probably not going to see a whole lot. Like in, in this case, they're just really getting the first parts of the HTML are rendering. Um, Chrome and IE expose JavaScript APIs that allow you to get this timing information, which is kind of cool. So that's why um, traditionally they've been used. Now we get to some, some metrics that you've probably seen before, like time to DOM content loaded, right? And you see this because all the, the F12 tools, they have like red and blue lines that show DOM content loaded and onload. So DOM content loaded is the moment in which the browser has received all of the HTML, it has parsed that HTML and turned it into a DOM tree, and it fires that JavaScript event that says, hey, you can start manipulating the DOM now with JavaScript. It doesn't mean that all of the resources for the page have been downloaded yet. So in this case, we still don't have the background images or the logo or maybe even some JavaScript is missing. None of that stuff is loaded. It's still being downloaded, and we get notified about that at 
time to load. That's when the onload event fires, when everything has been downloaded that needs to be downloaded. Um, these are all really cool things, but I just had to take, I don't know, five minutes to explain them all to you, and they're very technical. And so when you're sitting in your business and trying to explain this to your boss or to the business stakeholders, oh yeah, we're fast because our DOM content loaded is X number of milliseconds, which is better than our onload, because and you're explaining the difference between these two, so they don't make sense. So um, a lot of the problem with milestone metrics are they're too technical. So what a lot of people do, a lot of developers have done, is they've made up their own milestones, time to whatever makes sense for their business. So Twitter is famous for this because their metric is time to first tweet. How long does it take before you see the first tweet in the timeline? Yeah, uh, YouTube has something very similar, which is time to video playback. How long until they've actually started playing the first frame of the video? Um, this, this is a login page here, so this fictional corporation um, might do time to form field focus. This is how long it takes to render the page, pull the username out of the cookie, and focus the, uh, the cursor in the password box so that a user can type in their password. Right? That would make sense for a login page. So there's all of these different milestones, and you kind of have to do customizations to get one that might make sense in your business. So we have lots of different types of metrics. The last one that I haven't touched here on is perceived metric. This is kind of the holy grail that everybody is shooting for right now. And a perceived metric, we don't necessarily care about any of, that technical, any of those technical milestones. Because I could have a page, and Todd could have a page. Two different websites, but we both have the exact same on load time. Now, I'm an old school guy, so it's just like a standard static website content. And when somebody loads my page, they see the text, they see the article they're coming to read while everything else is being downloaded, and then on load fires. Todd's really cool, though, and he built a spa application. So between the time that they get the first byte and on load happens, there's nothing there because Todd loads everything in with Ajax. Uh, and, and it's doing JSON to then put the content there. So even though we have the exact same time to onload, the way that the user sees the page and how quickly they get the content they want is dramatically different. And so perceived metrics try to address this problem. Um, all the big players in the industry have tried to come up with perceived metric. Google has one called above the, pull, uh, above the fold rendering time. Microsoft has one called um, page phase time, there's a community one called uh, user-ready user time. Um, they're all very complicated to calculate, and for the most part, they've kind of fallen away. Nobody really uses them anymore. There's one, though, that has kind of stood the test of time, and seems like the one that everybody's going to rally behind, and it's called speed index. Let me explain to you the way that this thing works. So let's take this website that we just loaded, right? And I've, I've put it here on a timeline where we started from when we originally entered the URL, all the way through to what it looked like when we finished loading the page there, a little bit off the edge of the screen. So one second in, it was still a white blank page, one and a half, white blank page, and then two, two, five, and so on. You, you can kind of see. And so if we estimate the visual completeness of that page, how close is it is to being finished? Uh, you can see we have 0%, 0%, 14, 57, 95. We kind of get um, these points that we can then plot on a graph. So this is two different requests. Uh, the first request, the yellow one, you can see that really quickly, we got 70% of the pixels painted onto the screen. And then it took a while. We got up to like 90. And finally, at the end, we got up to 100%. Well, this other request, request number two, we shot up really quickly to 25% of the final pixels being there. But it took a long time for us to finally end up. And look, at the very end, like the last, let's call that a second. The last second, they're actually tracking the exact same. But the perceived 
speed, speed of performance of these two pages is completely different for the end user. So how do we turn this graph into a nice number that we can compare? Um, well, we use math that is way too complicated for me to understand. Uh, I think this is called an integral. Um, basically, we're going to walk that line in tenth of a second increments. And by doing that, we can capture the visual completeness, the, the percent complete at that moment, and we can calculate the area above the line, the area above the curve. And so this curve, uh, the area above it looks like this, and we calculate the area, and when we calculate the area, we get a number. We'll call that number milliseconds, and we get a number that's 1343. That is the speed index for request one. If we look at request two, you'll notice instantly, now that I've colored it in, that's a much bigger, heavier shape. And likewise, request two, the user would perceive that page to be much slower, even though they end at the same moment in the top right-hand corner. Um, and so we're saying that speed index here is 91.77. Okay, cool. So that was my review of the different types of metrics and the things that we're going to be looking at for the rest of the talk. So we should all be level set now. So how do we get these metrics? What we really want to do is not do the typical developer thing. So the typical developer thing is I, I, I build a new feature of the website, I load it up on my machine, and I say, hey, boss, works on my machine, and it's nice and fast, right? Uh, well, here's the problem with that. Your machine is very, very similar every single day, every single time you use it. It's the same hardware. You're probably on the same stable network in the same maybe one or two browsers. Not a lot of variation. Your users, on the other hand, are distributed in lots of geographies, use lots of different devices, lots of different network connections, and lots of different browsers. If you made a test matrix of just those four variables across all of your users, that matrix would be so large that there's no way you could complete all of those tests in all of those different conditions. So this sucks. So what do we want to do? I basically want to turn my users into testers for me. I want every request that they make to production to give me data about how fast the site was going for the guy in Egypt, on a cell phone, on a camel, using Firefox OS. I think that's where they use Firefox OS. Um, and so we're going to do that using a technique called real user metrics. And in the industry, they call this RUM. Um, I don't drink, but I, I guess they, they do. Um, we're lucky because the W3C has a group dedicated to performance called the Web Performance Group, and they put out lots of specifications about how to make the web faster in general, but specifically around how to gather metrics from the end user in the browser all at the last mile. So we're going to look at a few of them. The main three that we're going to look at today are the Navigation Timing API, the Resource Timing API, and the User Timing API. So, the navigation timing API creates a timeline that looks like this. Now, you might recognize a subset of this timeline because we see our old friends DNS and TCP, and then it's called something different here, but this is the request thing. That was uh, in my dev tools, right? That was part of it. We have a little bit more on the, on the left, which is the redirect and app cache, and, um, uh, and then the browser doing some processing. You have a question. I'm going to ask you to hold questions. Um, jot it down for me, bud, and then I will answer questions all day long when I'm done because we have a lot of material to get through. So this API, what it does is it takes this timeline and it will give you back an object, and the properties of that object are annotated here. It basically hits all these points on the timeline and tells you how long it took to get to that point on the timeline. And you'll notice that the browser support is surprisingly good, i.e. 9 and better. So I'm going to show you um, how to use this really quick. Now, 
At NDC Oslo, when I, built, when I did that other talk about how to make an application faster, I showed off this application. I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, I'm a Miami Marlins fan. They just signed the largest player contract in the history of North American sports. Um, I know you guys all care because you're mostly British. Um, but, uh, so instead of showing you a website about baseball players, which nobody cares about, I figured we would compromise and I would show you a bunch of baseball clowns. These are the mascots of minor league baseball. This guy is my favorite. Um, his name is Balapino. He's a half jalapeno, half baseball bat, and as a fat American, my love for food and baseball comes together in one glorious costume. Um, so in that talk, I took this application and I made it much, much faster. So at mascots.azurewebsites.net is the original code base that's slow. At mascots-staging, my staging environment, I have the same website after the video, right? This is the after shot, essentially, when I've made all those optimizations. So I want to look at the navigation timing API. So I'm going to press F12 and open up my dev tools and get into the console. I'll zoom in here so everybody can see OK. Oh, no. And I'm going to say window.performance. Now, this, this property, .performance, this is where that working group lives. Everything inside of this property is gold. Uh, so we'll cover a lot of that. But I'm going to say .timing. And that gives me back this object here that shows me all of those different points in that timeline and when they happen. So I can see when the load event started, when the load event ended in sub-millisecond accuracy. I can just do some quick subtraction and figure out how long that load event took. Or I could see how long it took from the, from the beginning of the fetch until the end of the load event, and I can do any kind of calculation that I want to. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I have to look at the spec. I just do subtraction on them. I, it doesn't, I don't think it turns back into a timestamp. One of them, uh, somewhere, another uh, API call you can get to get the timestamp if you want to know what time it is. But this is mostly about duration. Good question. Um, this isn't really that sexy, though. So I'm going to show you a bookmarklet that somebody made that takes this exact same API and turns it into something that looks like this. So now we get a visualization of what was happening to render this page. So you can see here, um, my domain lookup time was nothing. That's because I've loaded this page a lot on this machine, and it's already cached in my DNS. Uh, and you can see how long the response took here. It took uh, about 90-ish milliseconds here. Um, and so we can kind of see all of this, this stuff. Uh, so that's, that's very nice. One thing that you might notice, though, is navigation timing was only showing me information about that page. It was one object. It's just the HTML. What about all the images and the CSS and stuff like that? Well, they realized that that was missing and created another spec called the resource timing specification. Not as well supported, still pretty widely supported. Very similar timeline, not as much because there's no DOM loading of images and stuff like that, but you get a very similar timeline. And once again, there's points all along that timeline that are available to you that you can get access to. So uh, to do that, once again, F12 tools. Oh, the slanty. There we go. Window dot performance dot get entries by type, and I'm looking for the resources. Boom, here's my array of objects back, and I can go in and inspect any one of them, and I can see the information. This is my logo. You can see when the fetch started, what the response end was. Uh, it's kind of hard to see this way, and a lot of people don't realize this, but if you take an array in the console and you wrap it up in a call to table, 
it will render out this table of all of the options. So you can see here's all of the different URLs. You can see my, my images, my CSS, my scripts are all being loaded, and you can see all the information, and so you can do math. Um, once again, maybe not super excited to see something in the DevTools. People have done better things than I and created a bookmarklet that uses that API. This is the resource, uh, resource timing bookmarklet that makes a heat map of your page. So when I hit that button, it takes all of the resources that I've loaded and shows me how long they take. And so it looks like these two little images right here, I need to do some work on. They're, these are really slowing up the page. Those are my hotspots. And so uh, that's a really nice um, thing that you can start to do once you have the data that the browser is now exposing. All right, I'm going to show you one more timing API. This is the user timing API. This is the API that that working group has put together so you can do the custom metrics like YouTube does, like the time to video playback. Um, and so on my app, if I go and look at one of the mascots, so let me go to network waiting. Oh, come on, I'm plugged in. Let me go to the Texas League. That's the home of Ballopino. And, and some of these mascots have Twitter accounts. If they have a Twitter account, their name turns into a hyperlink. I'm going to click on Ballopino, and I can see and read his tweets. Okay, so I've taken a page from Twitter, and for this page, my custom milestone metric is time to tweet. So in my code, what I've done is you can see I load in the widget from Twitter that displays his tweet stream. And as soon as that's done, I call this method of that API called performance.mark. And I leave a stamp, a moment in time, called, I'm calling this load Twitter script end. So I've finished loading that script on line seven. And then Twitter has uh, some functionality available. There's a callback that when it's ready, when it's been parsed and is executed, um, I have this callback here. And so I leave another mark where I'm saying that Twitter is ready. And then Twitter fires an event when it has rendered to the screen. So I leave another mark saying that Twitter has rendered. So now I'm getting all these custom things that are for my application. And then I can call another API called performance.measure, where I say, I want to measure the time between when Twitter, render, uh, when, when Twitter was ready and when Twitter rendered. And I'll call that the Twitter render time. That's how long it took. Once Twitter was on my page, that's how long it took for them to render. And so once again, I come back. You'll, you'll notice a pattern here. I'm going to say window.performance. dot get entries by type, and I want the marks, so mark. Uh, you know what, let me wrap that up in a table for you. So you can see here's the three marks that I showed you, when their start time was, and the duration. The duration is zero, because it's just a moment in time. What we really want is a measure, and there's the Twitter render time, and here's the moment, or how long it took. So it took 726 milliseconds from the time Twitter got to my page to show something. Um, and so I've, I've done all this custom. Um, the, once again, you guys see the trend here. Another bookmarklet uh, that's really nice for the, the user timing APIs, this performance one. This actually uses all of the APIs together. But you can see here it kind of draws out a, uh, a quasi-waterfall chart. And so you can see when my load Twitter script happened, when, my, when Twitter was ready, and then off the side of the screen for when Twitter actually rendered. So those are cool. So now we're getting 
tons of data from the browser about all the requests that are being made and how long they took, and we're even able to put custom things in there, but I'm still stuck in the console, and I need to get this back to my server so I can save this somehow and do something with it. Now, the best time to call these APIs that I've been calling is in unload, in the unload event, because that's when all the resources have been loaded. That's when everything possible could have happened, when all your marks have been, when, been laid down. But the problem is, is inside of onload, if you make an AJAX request to fire the data back to the server, most browsers will ignore the AJAX request and won't make it. So you have to make a synchronous request, and then the browser will honor it. But that means that every time a user navigates on your page, they have to wait for you to send all the data to the server and get a response before the browser will finish the onload and start loading the next page. You're going to pay a huge performance penalty to get performance data, and that kind of defeats the purpose. Uh, the group recognized that, and so they created this API called the Beacon API. So in onload, I'm going to build up this rum object. This rum object is using all of the APIs that I just showed you on the performance dot stuff. And I'm going to say navigator.sendbeacon, and I pass it in a URL, and here I'm just uh, JSON encoding that data. And it will post that data back to my server. And because it's trying to be very fast about the way it does it, it doesn't even wait for a response. 200, 404, browser doesn't care. It says, I fired that off to you, I'm moving on. Make sure that you handle, handle the data. Um, and so what this looks like on my site, my site's built in MVC. Um, I have this rum controller, so you can, uh, I have a rum controller here. And so this is where the data is being sent to. I'm taking the input stream. I'm running it through uh, json.net to deserialize it into this object that I call rum. Rum has the resources from the resource timing API, the navigation timing API, and marks and measures from the user timing API. I also gather other information that are just available on the headers of any request. So the refer, the user agent, so I know what browser the user is using, and their IP address, so I can then roughly calculate their geolocation. So now I have all of this data that I collected from the browser, plus I know where it came from and what type of device and browser they were using, and so I can segment that data and start to um, analyze it as I go. So that's RUM. RUM is really good for answering the question, is my page fast and for real? Not just because you did it in your browser, because the, end ga the guy on the camel in Egypt uh, says that it was fast or not. RUM is not very good at telling you how can you make your page faster. It's just a bunch of information. And so you move from the observe into the orient, orient phase a little bit in the OODA loop here when you go into synthetic testing, because you're going to take that data, you're going to analyze it, and now you want to replay that guy on a camel's request in a, a way that you can do it over and over and over again to figure out what was going on and, and uh, uh, make some changes. So for that, we're going to use synthetic testing tools. Um, the one that I like to use is called Web Page Test. It's free and open source. You can download it and run it on top of your own infrastructure at your company or put it on, on Azure or something like that. Um, but there's a publicly available service, and that's the one that we're going to use today. Um, it has instances that run all over the world. This map is actually accurate. And it runs every browser that you could possibly want, except for IE mobile. Um, what's cool about web page tests and synthetic testing in general is it gives you control over all of those variables. So now I get to pick the geography that my request is coming from. I get to pick the browser and the device type that my request is coming from. And I can do that over and over and over again. 
So let me, let me show you uh, a few things about this tool. This is a very cool tool. Uh, so this is it, webpagetest.org. You come here, you enter in some URL. Um, like I said, you have lots of options about where you want to run your test from. These are locations, what browser you want to run your test from. Um, I'm going to go ahead and we'll just, we'll just use this URL. We'll paste it in. And um, you'll see here that I have this option to select the number of tests that I want to run. Now, the thing with synthetic tests and with the internet in general is you can run a test right now and run a test again in an hour, and you're not going to get the same numbers back because we're running on the internet, and the internet is not 100% reliable, and, and the, the round trip time for some requests will change. So to get around that, we kind of have to give ourselves some padding when we do synthetic testing. So um, this is showing the number of tests to run being one, but it will allow us to go up to nine. You want to test as many times as possible. I recommend that you always just basically leave this at nine. What will happen is it's going to run the exact same test nine different times in a row. And so one might be really slow, one might be really fast, but the idea is you're going to take that collection of nine and you're going to find the median. You're going to find the, like, the normalized test, and that's the one that you're going to use to get around network uh, irregularities. Because we're on limited time, I'm going to leave this set to one. Uh, but all I need to do now is hit start test. Because I'm using the public service, all of you could be running tests right at the moment too. So I get stuck in a queue. You can see I'm waiting behind one other test. When that test is finished running, then they will run my test. And if I'm doing nine tests, it's going to make nine requests. I'm going to wait for all of that time. And eventually, at some point, it will come back and give me my results. You can see my test started 14 seconds ago. I'm not going to make you wait for all of this. So I've pre-cooked, uh, you know, like Mario Batali style. I've pre-cooked a bunch of results that we can look like. You can see that this result just came back. Instead, what I've done is I've taken the home page of the production URL, my unoptimized site, and I ran a test on it nine times already to save time. And so this is that result. So I'm going to go here. I'm going to click on plot the full results. And you can see, here's the load time of all nine of those requests. I'm going to turn on the median measure. And you can see that the median was request number seven um, at 9,214 milliseconds for the onload time. This is the unoptimized site. Um, here you can see the speed index was at uh, 3,976. Uh, those are both request number seven as the median. Um, you can see here that request number three is way high, way higher than all the rest. It's kind of an outlier. I'm probably not going to pay attention to that one. We're going to assume that was a network anomaly and move on. So I can dig into a lot of details about this request. So you can see here, they're showing me the median run by default and the metrics of that median run. That's why this is run seven, because that is the median. So here's all of the metrics, including speed index. I can dig into the details of this request, and I see the waterfall chart that we're all used to from our dev tools. Now, um, the page that we're loading here, I think I told you I was the home page. I, I lied. We're loading the all mascots page, which is every single one of the 160 mascots and their league and team icons all on one page. It's a very, very image-heavy page. So you can see, when I look at this waterfall chart, it's a very, very big waterfall chart because I have a lot of images. And when we get to the bottom, uh, web page test shows you things that you don't normally see from developer tools. Uh, I really like the CPU, CPU utilization and bandwidth utilization graph that shows what that browser was doing and how busy it was during that moment. So you can see right here, my CPU was spiked right between the 3.5 and, and the 4.5 second mark. And if I scroll back up to see what was happening on the waterfall at that time, you'll see that I have all these JPEGs that came in right here. 
And so this is probably the CPU of that device decoding the JPEG so it can show it. Another thing that's really cool that web page test does is it takes all of the requests on the waterfall and squishes them down so you only have one line per TCP connection. So I ran this test on Chrome. Chrome makes six TCP connections back to any given host. So you can see here that all of mine are going back to mascots.azure.net. And all of these little zebra stripes here, the purple is images, right? Here's the, here's the legend. All of these zebra stripes are another image request happening. So you can see I have a ton of image requests happening there. If I sharded my domain and I moved some images to another domain, you would imagine that I could get another six domains here and take all that purple time and cut it in half by stacking it on top of each other. So this is uh, some really nice insight. Uh, web page test also does some rule-based metrics for you. They give you a grade here. You can see I have a lot of Fs. This, this looks like uh, my report card in middle school. Um, if I want to know more about what these things mean, I can go to the performance review, and it tells me, I have a lot of red on this page, uh, it tells me things like uh, a lot of my responses aren't compressed, my images are not optimized, I'm not using progressive JPEGs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I ran the exact same page on staging, the optimized version of the site, and I get this. You notice my grades got a lot better. This is like Nick in high school when I started to care. Um, I've got a, a little bit more green here, and you'll notice like progressive images, I got 100 out of 100. Uh, my images are a lot more optimized. I have a little bit more work that I can do here, but I can kind of quickly see and compare. But this is what we really want to do, right? We want to compare the old version of the site to the new version of the site to make sure the new version is, is better before we put it into production. So with web page tests, you can come in here to your test history, and you'll see all the requests that you've made, all the tests that you run. And you can select a couple of them and hit the compare button. When I do that, I get this. So this is those two results that we just looked at, the all mascots for staging and production. Staging on top, production on the bottom, and it's giving me this film script view. So we can see what those two things look like when they're loading. Um, at two and a half seconds, I'm already starting to get to see some of the names of the, of the mascots. And at three on staging, I'm complete. At three seconds on production right now, I'm a white blank page. I don't see anything show up until a full second later, and the page finishes uh, a half a second after that. So I'm getting a whole second and a half increase with the changes that I made, which is great. Now, web page test lets you dig into these things a little bit more. So what it's actually done here is it's overlaid the two different waterfalls. So here's the production waterfall. And I can change the alpha transparency and move over to the staging waterfall and compare and contrast the two. And you'll notice instantly that on staging, all of these assets moved way closer to, to, to me. And on production, they're very far away. Well, one of the reasons for that is because I'm flushing this response early now. And so all of these files can begin to get downloaded before the server is even done doing its work. The thing that I think is really cool is if I scroll back and forth on the timeline so I can visually see what was happening, notice this red bar moving back and forth. It's showing me at that moment where were we in the waterfall chart so I can see what was the thing that was holding me up before I actually started to get a rendering. And then finally, the last metric, my favorite metric, if we scroll all the way down to the end, we see a visual progress graph very much like the one that I already showed you when I was explaining explaining speed index. So you can see on staging the optimized version, we shoot really quickly up to, I don't know, 73% or whatever, and then kind of make our way up. And on production, we're just pegged at the bottom. It really, it really stinks. And so if I wanted to know what those values were, here's all of the different timings you could want. And the speed index on the optimized version is 885. And the speed index on the unoptimized version is 3,975. 
So in that one hour long video, we made a 400% increase to this site. So this is all synthetic testing, but what I, one of the things I like about web page tests is the guy who creates it is very involved in the community and is keeping track of all of these specs that I already showed you for real user metrics. So if we go back to um, one of these Twitter pages where we're rendering Twitter, remember we put in the custom metrics so we can get time to tweet. Let me, oh, wait a minute, I totally forgot something. This is the coolest thing. So we have all of these technical things, but how do you, how do you convince your boss that things are actually faster? You hit this create video button. That pops this up. So two here, I mislabeled this. I'm sorry about that. Two is staging, one is production. This is optimized, number two. I can hit play, side by side, showing me how they load, and I can compare them. 2.9 was done, it goes black and white, 4.4. So you can download this video and pass it around to your team and show everybody that you made things better. Close a couple of these tabs so I don't lose my place again. Um, so I was mentioning the, 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 the time to tweet, right? So I run a result here on that page. Once again, Ballopena's Twitter page. Um, if I go and look at the waterfall chart now, we have some new lines on it. And these lines have little triangles in the top right-hand corner. And if I mouse over the triangle, you'll see load Twitter script and come on, get on it, Twitter ready. And this should be Twitter rendered. So all of that RUM data that I'm plumbing in also can be exposed through in my synthetic tests. Uh, so that, that's quite handy. Now the synthetic testing I told you is all about controlling variables, right? We picked the location, we picked the browser. There's other things that we can really get nitty gritty and control. Um, one of the examples that's pretty cool in web page test is if I come here to where we were creating a test, I can control the connection speed. And I have all these profiles, right? Like what does a dial-up modem look like? What does 3G look like? I can do custom and put in how much latency I want or how, what percent of the packets I want it to drop so they have to be resent. Um, that's kind of cool. Um, I can also come over here to this thing called SPOF. SPOF stands for single point of failure. And you guys all know what a single point of failure is, but you typically think about it in the back end, right? Like if your database goes down, your whole site is screwed because that's a single point of failure. Well, on the web in the front end, we have single points of failure too. Think about every time you add a resource to your page, where is that coming from? And if it's coming from a third party, like my Twitter widget is, what happens to my page if Twitter goes down? How does my page respond to that? That's a really hard thing to test because you can't call up Twitter and say, hey, can you guys have an outage for 30 minutes so I can test something? It just doesn't work. But you can come into web page test and you can say, you know what? I want platform.twitter.com to fail. I want it to be down. That's the URL. That's the host that Twitter serves their widgets from. Now, if I run that test with that being down, I can come and look at the film strip view and you can see that if Twitter was down, and somebody went to go look at Ballapena's tweets. Very important tweets. Five seconds in, I have the background and the header. 10 seconds in, no change. 15 seconds in, no change. 20 seconds in, no change. And finally, it's probably about 20 seconds in, the browser gives up and says, you know what? Screw Twitter, it's not happening and can finish rendering the rest of the page. So all of that time, the user could have at least been laughing at the picture of Volapino, but because of the way I've architected my page, I have this single point of failure. And of course, you can compare any two different requests. So here's me showing off what, what it looks like when Twitter is up versus when Twitter is down. So you can see when Twitter is up, 1.8 seconds, decent experience. But when Twitter is down, our users are screwed. So that's pretty interesting to be able to do these comparisons.
You can get really, really nitty-gritty with web, uh, web page tests. Like I could come in here to some of these advanced settings and turn on the ability to do a, a packet trace. And when I run a test that way, I get a new link here that will let me download a tcp.cap file, which you can then open up inside of Wireshark or something like that, or give to your network administrator, and literally look at every packet that was moving across the NIC when that test was being made. I don't have Wireshark installed, so instead I'm going to click on this view link, which opens up that cap file in something called CloudShark, which is an online version, basically, of Wireshark. And so you can see, here's all the traffic that was happening on that machine when my test was made. I'm going to go ahead and filter this down to just the HTTP. Oh, oh sorry. Apply. And if we scroll through here, we'll find my request. There's the request to Home League Texas. Um, I'm going to use this analysis tool to follow the stream. And you can see now when I've said follow stream, what's going on, man? When I've said, you guys got anything? Uh, I'll walk you through this. When you say follow stream, you're only looking at that one TCP connection. So for that one connection, you can see I made the request, the response, I have a bunch of compressed HTML, and then a request for some CSS and a bunch of HTML. Um, I can go ahead and show only this stream, and now I'm looking at the nitty-gritty. I can see the response to my request here. I can uncompress that, and I can see here's all the HTML that I got in the first TCP packet back to that response. I get really, really nitty-gritty. So uh, the tools are super powerful. So just really quickly, we talked about Rome, we talked about synthetic. Uh, synthetic looks really cool, and I just showed you a lot of nice demos. The reality is, is you have to do both. Uh, the companies that publish their performance data, like Etsy in New York City is one of them, the numbers that they get from RUM versus the numbers that they get from their private instance of web page test, RUM shows them being two to three times slower. And this is basically the trend for everybody that, that does that. Because there's just so many variables that you'll never be able to calculate in a synthetic test. RUM, like I said, shows you is the page fast? Synthetic shows you, how do I make it faster? You need both. Once you know both, how do you bake it into your process? That's, that's the obvious next question. I don't want to think about this all the time. I just want to commit my code and my CI server to make sure that I'm getting faster. I want fast to be a feature. I want it to be baked in. This is actually quite easy now that uh, gulp and grunt are as pervasive as they are. The whole tooling system around NPM, actually, it really helps out a lot. So I'm going to open up the command line here, where I have, um, I actually prefer Gulp, for reasons we won't get into. There's a lot of tasks available around performance for Gulp, like uh, minifying uh, CSS and HTML, <coughs> concatenating files, stuff like that. There's also a lot of the same kind of tasks available for Grunt, um, but you know, there's not a, a pure intersection. And so I want some from both. So I've actually installed a bridge that lets me call grunt tasks from Gulp. So I'm going to show you a couple of Gulp things, a couple of grunt things, but I'm going to call them all through Gulp. The code for all of this is available already online. You'll get the link at the end. So if I say Gulp um, PSI, which stands for P Page Speed Insights, and run that, it's going to make a request out to the Google Page Speed service look at my home page, and give me back a bunch of qualitative metrics. So you can see the number of resources, the size of my images, et cetera, et cetera, and a score. 
I got 97. I'm a very good boy um, for the staging site. Uh, that's cool. There's also another variant that works on top of the page speed service called TMI, which stands for too many images. Not too much info, too many images. Very clever of them. And if I run that, it will go out and just analyze the images on that same URL. And so you can see here that it's saying my image weight is 282.5K. And what's really interesting is down here is on desktop. Compared to the 50th percentile website on the internet, I am 332K better. But I am not better than the 25th percentile. I have some work to do there. So I'm somewhere between the 25th and 50th percentile on image weight for my homepage. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Now, this is just metrics in the console. That doesn't really matter. But what you can do is in your gulp file, you can set up a threshold on these. And so my score was a 97. But if my score ever drops below 90, the, the command line will throw an error, and that will break my build. Right? So I can just call this from Team City or Travis or whatever I'm using, build broken, and I'm like, oh, OK, I need to go in and fix my performance. So there's a few other uh, tools that I like. Um, this one is called Grunt. I'm sorry, I'm using Gulp. Gulp Perf Budget. What Perf Budget does is it uses web page test. A call is going out to web page test. It's running a test right now, the same thing that I showed you in the UI. It's doing this all <coughs> programmatically. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I need a gulp. Really? That's it? We don't, we don't have to. Um, and it's going to scrape all of those metrics and bring them back for me to see. Not only for, for me to see, but for me to make assertions against and say that I have to be at this certain point for a different metrics. So um, we'll let this keep on running. It should be back in a second. I'll show you how that's set up. Uh, you can see here, I just pass in the URL that I want to hit. I have to have an API key set up. Uh, if you're using an uh, internal instance of web page test, you don't need this, but I'm using the service, so I had to get a key. And then I can say, I want my speed index to be less than 1,000 milliseconds. I want my total number of bytes that come down to be less than a meg. That's all the images and script and everything. And I want to render something to the screen in faster than 1,000 milliseconds. And you can look at the documentation to see how you set all of these things. And hopefully we're done now. Yep, we are. And so I failed. Done, but with warnings. Uh, my speed index was 1117, but my budget is 1,000. I'm 117 milliseconds over right now. And so when you set up a performance budget and you have these hard lines that you're not going to let your page go slower than, you run into some challenges. Because you go and you add some new feature, you check in that code, and you break the build. You have three options at that point. You can either figure out a way to make that new feature that you're adding to that page more performant and fix the problem. Or you can take another feature that exists on the same page and try to make that more performant so you have more room in your budget for the new thing. Or you don't build the new thing. And so it's a real trade-off when you start talking to UX and stakeholders to say, well, how much do we care about performance? And how do you balance all of that? And so these kinds of tools help that. The last one I'm going to show you is Gulp Phantomas. That's a play on the word phantom. It's actually a character for some movie that's really creepy. Um, but phantom as in phantom.js, which is a headless browser. So when I'm running this, it's actually using a browser that has no UI, making a request to my home page, gathering up a bunch of RUM data. And then what it does that's really nice is it takes that data and it writes it out to this HTML file. 
So this file is showing you all of the runs that I've had for the last couple of days on my site. Now, I haven't made any changes to my site, so it had the same number of requests. I had 24 requests on the homepage every single time um, because I'm not changing it. But if I scroll down, we'll start to see some milestone-based metrics. Like here, the, the file with the largest latency. And you can see I've set up a threshold here that I don't want any of my files to have a latency over 3,000 milliseconds, three seconds, and, uh, and it's happening a lot. And so I can come in to this table and start scrolling through these things to see what my times are. My times are way off. I'm like, I see 5,000s and 9,000s. And if I click on details, it will show me which files those are. Look, it's footer background uh, JPEG. This is obviously a file I still need to do some optimization uh, around. Um, and so I can figure that out. This UI, like I said, you basically get for free for running that command. It's completely customizable. You can add and remove and rearrange widgets however you want to. You can set a different threshold on every single one of them. <coughs> and if any one of the thresholds doesn't pass, it puts this warning up in the top right-hand corner like you're seeing right now. I can click on it and just jump down to the thing that's a problem. So this is the perfect thing to stick on the giant monitor in the middle of the room, and you can see as you're doing your continuous integration checks if you're getting faster or slower. Um, so I feel like Grunt and Gulp make these things much, much simpler. Um, I showed you four of my favorites. If you come here to perf-tooling.today, this website has a huge listing of all the different tools, and you'll see a lot of grunt and gulp tasks in here, including all the ones that I've showed you, of different things that you can do to track your performance. And it's all as easy as what I've, what I've just shown you. Okay. But there's a little bit of a problem. Everything that I just showed you talked about a threshold, some magic number that Nick just picked out of the air. Why did I pick the thresholds that I did? Well. There's actually some research behind this, and so let me share that with you. Um, this research comes from a, a usability study done back in 1968. Jacob Nielsen redid the study in 1993 and in 2005, and the numbers have stayed the same across all of those years. This is how fast human beings perceive things. So 100 milliseconds to most humans feels instantaneous. So if I'm on a website and I mouse over to some button and I click on that button, that button needs to depress, needs to get pushed down within 100 milliseconds or I feel like, oh, maybe my mouse isn't working. Maybe I need to get that click, right? And you find yourself clicking the button again. 100 milliseconds to do that. That doesn't mean that you have to respond to the request in 100 milliseconds. You just need to notify the user, yep, I got your gesture, I got your command, I'm working on it. So maybe you disable the button, you show a loader, you do something like that within 100 milliseconds very quickly. Now, if I click something and go one Mississippi, basically I have not broke my concentration at all, and if you can get a response back in 100 milliseconds, you're golden. Your user will feel like you have the best website ever. Um, because 1,000 milliseconds, one second is uninterrupted thought. The drop-off starts dramatically at three seconds, and by 10 seconds, none of the people in this study were still thinking about the thing that they did when they clicked the button. So uh, basically for me, at 10 seconds, I'm on another tab, and I'm coming back to your website later if I come back. Now, this is a usability study. These are not goals. These are not the numbers you should be trying to hit. These are thresholds. These are the numbers you want to stay away from. What are some goals? Well, Google recommends that your pages should have a speed index of 1,000 milliseconds. I'm guessing that that comes somewhere from that uninterrupted thought. That doesn't mean that you've done all the work in 1,000 milliseconds, but basically most of the content that the user needs, they're seeing in 1,000 milliseconds. Um, is that a good number? I think it is. 
most of my websites that I build now that I know about performance, I can achieve this number without trying that much, like with only putting in an extra hour or two worth of work um, and following the best practices that are out there. Um, maybe you're in a special situation. Um, one of the things that was interesting when I ran that gulp test, that too many images, is it told me that I was better than the median, right? It told me I was better than the 50th percentile, but not as good as the 25th percentile. What does that mean? Where did that come from? Well, TMI uses this website under the covers called HTTP Archive. The HTTP Archive um, has been running for four or five years now. They basically take the top quarter million websites in the world, based on things like the Alexa 100 and all that kind of stuff. And they run a scan on them every two weeks. And they run that scan through web page tests and page speed insights, and they get all of the metrics that we've been talking about today, and they gather them. And they put out these reports, so you can see all the different stats and trends for if the internet is getting worse or better. And if you look at these trends, you can see the internet is just getting slower and slower and slower. We're getting very obese. Um, somebody has quipped that we've uh, built the web in our own image. And we as humans tend to be getting fatter. Um, so you can see some of this stuff. Now what's really cool about this is they take that data. It's gigs and gigs, terabytes of data if you look at all of it. And they make it available to you. You can download it and run it uh, in MySQL yourself if you want to. Or you can follow their link over here to Google BigQuery, uh, which is very similar to an online version of um, SQL Management Studio. That's not really true. Um, this is like a highly distributed database. But you can see here's all the tables. So uh, on November 15th in 2010, all the pages that they scanned. And for every two weeks, all of the tables, there's 2012, 2013, 2014. I'm going to come down here to the latest pages. I, I tend to use this table because whatever the latest data is in this table. And you can see that there's a whole bunch of different metrics available, including a lot of the metrics that we've already talked about today. Time to first byte, on content loaded, page speed score, speed index. So I'm going to go ahead and compose a query and find out how the top 250,000 websites in the world do on some of their metrics. And I can use that to compare to how I'm doing at my own company. So I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I'm just going to copy and paste my query. I'm going to run this. So this query that I ran, it, the queries look very, very much like SQL. It's, it's a flavor of SQL. There's some extra functions and keywords. But if you know SQL, you can basically roughly get by. So I'm taking a lot of the metrics we've talked about, speed index, time to first byte, onload, total number of requests, the total number of bytes, the number of domains, and page speed. And I'm breaking it into quantiles. I'm basically putting all the requests into 100 bins. So that way, I can then get the nth bin, the 50th bin, which will be the median. Okay. So the median speed index across the top websites in the world is 4,191 milliseconds. The median time to first byte is 643. Um, on load is 7406. These are all milliseconds. Total number of requests, median, 77. That sounds ridiculously high to me. Um, total number of domains, 11. Also sounds really high to me. I think I could beat almost all of these numbers pretty easily. Um, maybe I want to dig into one of these a little bit more. Let me just go ahead and cheat again and steal another query. So this time, what I've done is I'm, I'm only looking at speed index, breaking it into quantiles again. But now I'm getting it the 10th, the 25th, the 50th, 75th, and 90th. So I'm getting all these different percentiles to see where they are. So the 10th percentile of the top websites on the internet do a speed index of 1624 milliseconds. We already saw the median. We see the 90th. The 90th percentile is almost 10 seconds 
These are the top 250,000 websites. I don't know about you guys, but I don't work on very many websites that even crack that high of importance in the world, and they can't do this. Well, they just probably don't care, to be honest. Um, so this is kind of cool. You can get in here, you can play around. You can start doing filters and look at the domains. So like if you are an e-commerce company and you want to see what Amazon is doing, they're in here. And so you can see how Amazon has progressed over time and make sure that you're doing better than them and do uh, some competitive analysis. So these are the queries that I just showed. You can do all kinds of other things, right? So like um, I was specifically looking at HTTP things, but maybe you're like a REST guy and you're building a web API and you want to know what status codes do people understand? Well, here, this query is taking all of the status codes that were returned from all of those requests and sorting them by popularity. Of course, 200 is the most popular, but it's really interesting to see which of the 400-level response codes people do and don't uh, return. Um, and then this query is another example where this is looking at all of the third-party domains. So this page makes a request to another domain. That's a third-party domain. What's the most popular third-party domains across these websites? Uh, and, and this one actually says that Google is number one and Facebook is number two, which makes sense because a lot of people use Google Analytics and a lot of people have Facebook like buttons, right? And those widgets are getting called from those places. Um, if, if this kind of thing interests you, I recommend that you check out this website, Big Queries. Big Queries is a discuss board run by, actually, it's funny, the top two guys, uh, Steve Saunders and Ilya Gregorek, the top two advertisers there, those are the guys who run all this HTTP archive stuff. Uh, this is where they post their queries that they're creating and they explain them. And you can come here and ask questions like, how would I figure out this? And people will help you out with it. Um, so it's pretty easy to get up and running with, with this data. So um, I have lots of resources available for you, and the video of my old talk, books, articles about all of this stuff if you want to dive in and see more. That's available at bit.ly.com slash tracking real world web perf. You can ask me questions now or on Twitter at NickMD23, or of course you can use this QR code which gives you all of the information plus access to the slides and the demo code. I appreciate you guys coming out. You were great and I was awesome. Thanks. Do we have any questions? I know, I know there was a question back here. Are you, so the question is, how does the browser know when the request ends and the response starts? By knowing when the network stack hands back the first byte on the response. And so, yes. And so in web page test, he is plumbing very deeply into the OS level network stack to get that kind of stuff. How difficult is web page test to stand up and run? I've, I've not personally done it. I've done research in it. So Pat Meenan, the guy who creates web page test, has a 90 minute long video about how to do it. And if you're cool using uh, Amazon Web Services, he has virtual machines already ready for you to go. So if you want to do it locally, uh, got to get those virtual machines to work. Back here in the black. Yeah, so how do I test non-public pages? So uh, a couple of things. Web page test does have advanced options to put in authentication credentials if, if it's 
that kind of scenario. I'm, I'm assuming you mean you're behind a firewall. What I would do is it introduces a lot of extra latency, but you're going to dismiss that, right? Uh, because RUM is how you're going to figure out if it's fast. Synthetic testing is how you're going to figure out how do I make it faster. You'll use something, my favorite is called NGROC, which is a tunneling service. And you can take literally what's running on local host or whatever you, know, you have in your company, tunnel out to the internet temporarily. It will give you this ugly URL. You plug that ugly URL into web page test, and it will tunnel through the internet back to you, and you will serve that request, which is really handy. But like I said, you're going to add a lot of extra latency. So if you're doing that a lot, I wouldn't recommend it. Then I would just put uh, web page test internal and set up a private instance. Uh, another question here? No, I think that HTTP Archive does have a way for you to go in and add um, your own. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen a link somewhere in here to say submit a URL for us to start scanning, and it will. But then all your data is public. There are tools like, um, there's one called Show Slow and one called Speed Curve, which is basically private versions of HTTP Archive where they will run your page every single day or whatever you want and then send you back uh, results. Very similar to the stuff I was showing for continuous integration, but you just outsource it to a service. Question up here? How do I query and gather my RUM data? Yeah, so that is a great question. Uh, I didn't cover that for timing reasons. Once you have it in there, you can analyze it however you really want to. The reality is, is I think most people at this point, these are all brand new APIs that I was showing you, right? At this point, people are just using third-party services. So New Relic has some stuff that does this. The truth of the matter is, if you turn on an option in Google Analytics, they will give you a very small percentage of what I just showed you today. Um, and you can see all of that right there in their, their dashboard. Um, and so there's tools like that. I actually think that the market is prime for building some kind of an internal reporting thing, but you would throw it on top of whatever normal reporting infrastructure you would use. So if that's SSRS, maybe, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just data in a database at that point. Todd. Oh yeah, Elk. The Elk stack will help you out. Sure. Um, a question about the metrics thing you were doing earlier with the curve of, of completeness. Um, a lot of when it jumped from zero to like seventy percent complete, it was largely because it looked like just the background image had loaded. Yep. Which I guess subjectively, I'm like, well, that's not really complete. You just changed the background to gray. So, so how is, is there a way to like discount that and say, you know what, I don't care if you've loaded the background image yet. That's not really complete. Show me when there's like text and content. Yeah. So Todd is asking. How do I manipulate what visually complete means to me in speed index? The truth of the matter is you can't. Speed index is not perfect, but like I said, I, I named all the giants who have tried and failed, and this is where we're at right now. Um, so a really good example is like, don't ever do this, please. But some websites you go to, they throw up this giant interstitial ad, right? Like, you go to msn.com and you hit go, and then all of a sudden there's a giant ad for the new Ford Focus that takes over the entire screen. Well, the reality is what I wanted was what was behind that ad, but the speed index will be zero all the way, even though all the content is loaded, because that ad shows up at the end and overwrites the whole thing. So you can tell 
web page test when to judge the end of a page, but visually, if you have things like that, like this background example you gave, there's nothing you can do about it right now. Um, the other thing I'll point out that's kind of a flaw with uh, speed index is it's only really available in a synthetic testing environment, so you're not getting that data back from your users. Uh, Pat Meenan, the, the guy who created web page test and is the guy behind speed index, is working on a RUM implementation. It's on GitHub right now. I asked him if it's ready for production use, and he says, I'm just waiting for somebody to be the first guinea pig. So if that's what you uh, want to be, you can go ahead and start getting that RUM data. It uses a slightly different calculation, but the numbers are the same within about 5%, he says, in his testing. Thank you guys very much. Please, if you like this, swing by the Redgate booth and say hi. I'll be hanging out there for uh, a little bit of the day and leave feedback. Green is my favorite color. Thanks.